Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. It's important for us to learn of the Muslim world, but especially out of the Middle East. Secondly, to ally with Muslim reformers, not just apologists, but people seeking for change. And a third thing, bearing in mind blasphemy, defend freedom of speech in the United States, in the Muslim world, and elsewhere. Otherwise, we ally with the radicals. That was Paul Marshall of the Hudson Institute to introduce our topic on this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lines, a program created in partnership with Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot with Gabe, and the past few weeks, the world's attention again has been on the Middle East, with the U.S. pulling out of Syria, the subsequent incursion by Turkey into Kurdish regions of that country, and the death of ISIS leader el-Baghdadi. But unrest in the Middle East has been an ongoing concern, whether we've heard it or not, with the protests in Iraq and Lebanon lately, continued fights between Yemen and Saudi Arabia, and ongoing tensions with Iran. How, as Christians, are we to respond? We thought we'd go back into the archives at Q and bring you a couple of talks about Islam and how, as Christians, we need to relate with and think well about Islam and our Muslim neighbors. Gabe? You know, one of the great questions that Oz Guinness said as we think about the great questions for the 21st century, one of them is, will Islam modernize peacefully? As we think about ISIS, as we think about terrorism, those who are using Islam as a religion to pursue terrorist activities, to wipe out the infidel. And then you have others who, like in countries like Indonesia, are peacefully operating for the most part, and the majority of the population is Islamic. How do we make sense of that? Well, Shadi Hamid, he's somebody who's an expert on this. He's the senior fellow in the project on U.S. relations with the Islamic world in the Center for Middle East Policy. Uh, but most recently, he wrote a book called Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World, and pretty much hot off the press, came to Q to talk about the ideas in this book. His talk was called The Struggle Within Islam. And in this discussion, he's helping us kind of understand what's happening if you pull back the curtain a little bit on Islamic culture, on thinking about religion and how those dynamics play into our politics, how nations should operate when they're full of a majority group of Muslims. What does Sharia law look like? How should we be thinking about this? And I think you're going to appreciate it because he gives us a good perspective, pretty observant, pretty subjective to just help us learn and be educated. So let's listen into this first nine-minute talk by Shadi Hamid. So the question I'd like to pose to you today is this. Is there something different about Islam? So in the next nine minutes or so, I will argue that Islam is in fact exceptional. Not just in any way, but in a specific way. In how it relates to law, politics, and governance. So in theory and in practice, Islam has proven to be resistant to secularization. Islam has played and continues to play an outsized role in public life and politics, not just in conservative societies in the Middle East, 
but also in more liberal ones, like Tunisia and Turkey, for example. But I should say from the outset, Islam's exceptionalism or its distinctiveness in this regard is neither good nor bad. It just is. And I think sometimes we in the West, and especially those of us who come from the swamp of liberal elitism in New York or D.C. and places like that, we automatically assume sometimes that religion playing a role in public life is a bad thing. And we have seen how religion can have a bad influence in politics. We see the images from the Middle East every day. But religion can also play a positive role, whether it's Christianity or, in this case, Islam, in terms of providing social cohesion, a sense of belonging, strengthening local communities. And also, if we go back a thousand years and look at the great Islamic empires, these were societies that put Islamic law or Sharia front and center, but they were also some of the most pluralistic societies up until then. They were also some of the most advanced societies in terms of science, medicine, and philosophy. So it's important to remind ourselves that when we talk about Islamic law, there are different interpretations. Some are more progressive, some are obviously more strict. And this could even apply as well in our own context, that with the decline of Christianity, what has taken its place? More pernicious ideologies like white nationalism and ethno-nationalism. So we also have to be careful what we wish for. So with that in mind, I want to focus on the two sources of Islam's distinctiveness. And to understand that part of it, we have to go back to the founding moment of Islam more than 14 centuries ago. So unlike Jesus, who was a dissident against a reigning state, Prophet Muhammad wasn't just a prophet. He was also a politician. He was also a head of state. He was a state builder. So naturally, when the Quran is being revealed to Prophet Muhammad and the early Muslims, it's going to have to have something to say about public law and governance. Why? Because the early Muslims were governing territory. And this is in stark contrast to Jesus, obviously, who wasn't in a position to govern territory. So naturally, the New Testament will have less to say about public law and governance. The second source of Islam's distinctiveness has to do with Scripture. So evangelicals will often say that the Bible is the Word of God. Muslims would say that the Quran is the Word of God, but go one step further and say the Quran is God's actual speech. In other words, every letter and word is directly from God. There is no human involvement, no human authorship. And this isn't just something that some Muslims believe. This is, in fact, a creedal requirement that Muslims writ large believe in, akin to, let's say, Christians believing in Jesus. So how then does this distinctiveness manifest itself today? So when we look at the rise of ISIS or the demise of the Arab Spring or all the chaos that we see daily in the Middle East, oftentimes we think about recent dates. So 2011, the start of the Arab Spring, or 2003, the invasion of Iraq. But there's another date which is in some ways is more important that doesn't get as much attention. 1924. And I'm sure a lot of you are nodding to yourselves right now. Yep, 1924. 1924 marks the formal abolition of the last caliphate, the Ottoman Caliphate. And ever since then, there's been a struggle to establish a legitimate political order in the Middle East. At the center of that struggle are a set of unresolved questions over Islam's relationship to the state, the state's relationship to Islam, 
and the role of religion in everyday life. And these unresolved questions remain unresolved to this very day. Part of the problem is that pre-modern Islamic law was not designed for the modern era, a modern era of nation states and democracy. So the question is, how do you square that circle? And in some ways, you can't square the circle, at least not conclusively. So we have a bit of a conundrum here. There are two basic approaches to this problem. One is to pretty much tell Muslims that they have to get their act together, that they should do what Christians did centuries prior, to have a reformation followed by an enlightenment, and after that secularization, marching towards the end of history of liberal democracy. Well, first of all, I mean, that's a lot to do, but, um, <laughs> but it's also, it's, it could also be a little bit patronizing where people will say, well, hey, you know, you guys are having some trouble. Don't worry. We went through it too. You guys will get there. Just, just be patient. But the bigger issue here is why should we expect Islam to follow the same trajectory Christianity followed, considering that Islam is a completely different religion? We should question that starting assumption. And also forcing people to become Lockean liberals or to become secularists against their will doesn't have a great track record. It also goes against the very premise of classical liberal thought, which is about free choice and autonomy. I would then suggest a second approach. Maybe it's not morally satisfying. Maybe it's not conclusive in the way that a lot of us might like, but I would argue that it's more realistic um, and it's more pragmatic. And that involves coming to terms with the reality that Islam is going to play a prominent role in public life for the foreseeable future, not just in the Middle East, but also in some parts of the West. Take France, for example, where French Muslims are significantly more outwardly religious in terms of public expression than their non-Muslim French counterparts, especially in a case like that where you have an aggressive secular ideology. So that means finding a way to accommodate and incorporate public expressions of religion and religiosity, obviously as long as they fall within the confines of the law and the constitution in whatever country it happens to be. So we're talking here about peaceful expressions of religious conviction and religious belief. Now the alternative to this accommodationist approach is quite troubling and it involves pushing religion out of the public sphere and trying to exclude Islam and to essentially erase it or disappear it. And again, that's not very productive usually. So this approach that I'm proposing, it sort of challenges a tenet of our modern liberal faith as Americans or as Westerners. This idea that we're all basically the same. We all ultimately want the same things. You know how the cliche goes, we're all human beings and all that. Yes, we are, it's true. As the great actor slash philosopher Ben Affleck once memorably said, he said, Muslims like to eat sandwiches too. This is not a joke. He actually did say this. And I can vouch for it as, as a Muslim. We do like our sandwiches. But you can like to eat sandwiches and still believe that Islam has something to say about public life or that some interpretation of Islamic law has something to say about public life. Another way of putting it is this, we aren't all the same, but then again, why should we be? Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to Shadi Hamid describe Islam and, and help us just get to peer a little bit behind the curtain 
on what's happening within this religion and within this faith. But as we move to our next talk, we invited Paul Marshall. Now, Paul Marshall, he serves as a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute Center for Religious Freedom. And for eight years prior to joining Hudson, he worked at the Freedom House as a senior fellow as well in the Center for Religious Freedom. He's somebody who's studied a lot around religion and society and specifically an expert in understanding Islamic populations and and how their influence is reaching far beyond the Middle East. Muslims make up a majority of the population in 49 countries around the world. It's the fastest growing religion, according to Pew Research Center. And so as Islam's integrating into Western societies, the question is, is peace and pluralism really possible? So I asked Paul to talk to us about, are there some limits to Islam? Can it really peaceably settle? Is, is the question that Osgin has raised, will Islam modernize peacefully? Paul starts to get into that question in a nine-minute talk called The Limits of Islam. Let's listen in now. In terms of the relation of Indonesia to the modern world, or perhaps we should say other worlds, I want to look at, at three things we need to focus on and consider. The first is silencing, the second is broadening, and the third is loving. One of the things we need to realize is the chief enemy of radical Islam or extremist Islam is moderate Muslim political and religious leaders. For reasons Shadi said, they're often the same people. But they suffer a great danger because they are often silenced. Often they're accused of being against Islam or being blasphemers or apostates or insulting Islam. Let me just give you four examples. One is an Afghan editor, Ali Mohakek Hassab. In his magazine, he published two articles, not criticizing Islam, but raising the question, do we really have to kill adulterers? Do we have to kill apostates? He ended up sentenced to two years in prison. And he, he fled the country. You can't raise these questions. Another example, Raif Badawi, a, a Saudi. He criticized government officials, was charged with, again with insulting Islam and apostasy. And in 2012, was sentenced to 10 years in prison and 1,000 lashes, of which he's had 50. Just one more, Salman Tazir, governor of Punjab, the largest province of Pakistan. He opposed Pakistan's blasphemy laws he was shot by his bodyguard. Uh, we had his daughter speak with us in uh, Washington, and she said, obviously, it's not just him. This is a warning to every liberal, that is, a person who believes in freedom. Shut up or be shot. One last one. Uh, Ayatollah Borojerdi in Iran. A learned scholar, he criticized the dominant regime. He criticized their view of Shiism. For that, in 2006, he was in prison. He's still there. His health is bad. He may die in there. But we're talking about a senior Iranian Ayatollah. This isn't just in the Muslim-majority world. You have it in the West as well. Just two quick examples. Mimoun Pusakla, a senator from Belgium. Eri Ekin Delegos, the first Muslim MP in Germany. Both of these women have criticized the place of women in much of the Muslim communities in Europe. For this, they have received death threats and they must always travel with bodyguards. So you see the pattern that these people are attacked. 
One of the major effects of that is, of course, not just the people who are attacked or directly threatened, but everybody else knows what happens to them. If you live in Pakistan, if you live in Iran, and you're a Muslim who opposes extremism, you're probably just going to shut up. And this is one reason that extremists, though a minority within Islam, tend to win many of their struggles. The result, to quote one more, Egyptian scholar Abu Zayt, who of course had to flee Egypt when he was accused of apostasy, these sorts of accusations prevent reform and confine the world's Muslim population to a bleak, colorless prison of socio-cultural and political conformity. There are many other dimensions, but I just want to highlight that as one of the things that we and Muslims need to struggle against if there are going to be changes in Islam. Now let me shift to the question of broadening. A map from Freedom House which tracks freedom in the world. The purple sections on that map are the least free. The countries of the world which tend to be least free, the areas are the Middle East and North Africa, going down into Africa, and then Central Asia. Of course, the Middle East and North Africa is predominantly Muslim, and it scores very badly on freedom. But if you look to South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, then southeast to Malaysia and Indonesia, they are significantly freer. They're not purple. Another thing about those countries, this is a map of Muslim populations. The bigger the circle, the larger the population. Over half the Muslims in the world live in South Asia and Southeast Asia, Indonesia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, also in, in West Africa, which can be comparatively free. These areas tend to be freer and larger in terms of Muslim populations. And we need to pay more attention to them. I'm going to concentrate on Indonesia because I know it best. And also it's the world's largest Muslim majority country. It's also the world's third largest democracy. And it's growing at 5% a year. It's an interesting place. And it's Islam maybe is often very different from that what you'd find in harsher desert land. Uh, here's one example, tends to be friendly. I don't know who this lady is, but she let me take her photograph because I wanted it because she had a stars and stripes hijab on. Lined up the camera and she smiled and did that. Partly because it also builds on a lot of cultural traditions which have helped shape Islam. Here's one. Uh, for a lot of, particularly in Java, a lot of the culture is harmony. We, we need to get along with each other. So you don't criticize people. You don't say no to them. So you say, well, you don't want people smoking in your restaurant. You say, well, smoking's good, but not smoking's better. So you have very much this cultural pattern. So what does this mean? Well, you have a more moderate Islam. A Muslim from Indonesia is 20 times less likely to go, go and join ISIS than a Muslim from America, 100 times less than one from uh, the United Kingdom. Or in my case, a book I wrote on blasphemy called Silenced. We can't get it published in the Middle East, too scary. But the forward to the English edition was written by this man, Abdul Aram Wahid, former president of Indonesia and former president of Naratul Ulama, the world's largest Muslim organization. 50 to 60 million 
members. And I'm sure not many of us have heard of it. He wrote the foreword to the English edition. The imam of the major mosque, the national mosque in Indonesia, wrote the foreword to the Indonesian one. This is a book which can't even be published in the Middle East. So we have a different world. What does this mean for us? It's important for us to learn of the Muslim world, but especially out of the Middle East. Secondly, to ally with Muslim reformers, uh, not just apologists, but people seeking for change. And a third thing, bearing in mind blasphemy, defend freedom of speech in the United States, in the Muslim world, and elsewhere. Otherwise, we ally with the radicals. And finally, loving, I want to end with a story. In 1998-2000, after the fall of the dictator Suharto in Indonesia, there was conflict in the east around Maluku, conflict between Christians and Muslims, probably 10 to 12,000 people dead. But hundreds of villages in that area, Christian and Muslim, did not participate in the violence because they had made covenants with each other called Pala of love and harmony. And two villages, Christian village uh, Posse, Muslim village Batumura, uh, have a covenant with us. And the Raja, the head of the village of Batumura, who's up there, told us the story of their tradition of the covenant. This is when, him when he's not dressed up. And he said in 1506, villages from here and villages from the Christian village of Posse had to go and pay their taxes to the Sultan of Ternate by boat up north a few hundred miles. On the return, there was a storm. The Christian boat sank. The Muslims rescued them, took them to shore, shared their food, gave them clothing. Then each community scratched their hand on a jagged rock on the beach, clasped their hands in blood, and made a covenant. Three parts to the covenant. We will not make war on each other. Second, we will help each other. And thirdly, we will not intermarry. They were serious Muslims and Christians. They weren't blending. They believed different things. So they didn't want intermarriage. It's still forbidden. But they would work together. And then he added to sort of reinforce the point of the genuine religious commitment. He said, you know, the Muslims here are fanatics. Which struck us as strange because we've been drinking tea with the fanatics all day. And then he added, the Christians here are fanatics. And then we sort of realized, like, no, it's like the real committed Muslims. The real committed Christians. We believe these things. We're not Episcopalians. I am, so I could say that. said, so we disagree on these things. But we all believe one thing. And we each believe our religion teaches us this. That we should love each other. Thank you.
Thanks again for listening to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. And, well, that was a lot to take in, I'm sure, between those two talks. So if you'd like to hear these talks again, maybe see the slides they were referring to, well, you can find them. They're available to you as a subscriber to the Q Media platform at qideas.org. You know, at Q, we want to encourage you to be one in your community who is a catalyst for dialogue and advancing good. And to do that, we want to encourage you to be part of a special week starting November 11th by hosting that week a Q dinner in your home. All you have to do is invite a group of friends, six or more, into your home for an evening of dinner, plus watching a Q video and then leading a discussion with those friends. We've done these Q dinners before, and the theme of this round of Q dinners is Solving Our Loneliness Epidemic. It features a nine-minute talk from Senator Ben Sass, who spoke at the Q 2019 conference in Nashville. We're growing our life expectancy at the back end. Childhood deaths and maternal deaths during uh, birthing complications, both way down. So what's happening? How is it possible that life is safer at the beginning, that life is extended at the end, that the two drivers of death, the number, number one and two, again, cancer and heart disease at 25 points each, third, distant third, stroke is about 6% to give you a, a barometer set. Those 25% numbers are on cancer and heart disease, both going down. How is it possible that the net average life expectancy in the U.S. is going down? We're killing ourselves. We have a massive epidemic of suicide, of opioids, of other forms of overdose and addiction, drug addictions that are killing us, and of liver disease. I think the epidemic of deaths of despair among us is just a canary in the coal mine of the much larger epidemic of loneliness in our time. Now, I'm sure you'd agree that this is a needed discussion and you can be part of leading it in your community. So just go to QDinners.com, sign up before November 11th to lead a Q dinner in your home. And by the way, when you agree to host a Q dinner, you get a 30-day complimentary subscription to Q Media. And through that, we provide you access to the Ben Sass video, a conversation guide to help you lead the discussion, and we'll even throw in a few recipes for dinner if you want to cook. Otherwise, you can just order pizza or whatever. But again, to learn more and to sign up, go to QDinners.com. That's QDinners.com. Thanks again for listening. Gabe? Well, we're looking forward to our next time together. Continue to share these with your friends. Make sure you invite them. Uh, to continue to listen in as we weekly delve into some of the difficult conversations and topics that sometimes aren't being talked about that much in Christian circles. But we hope at Q you can start to count on and rely on us to deal with those topics and those issues. So until next time, I hope you have a wonderful week. This program is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.